Hello and welcome to another edition of Spotlight. This is one of our supplemental episodes. We do something a little different from our regular mission of exploring the Star Trek franchise from a non-Trekkie perspective. This episode we're going to be doing an interview with Roger Lay Jr., uh, a man who has been heavily involved in Star Trek fandom and the Star Trek franchise itself. He was instrumental in bringing the next generation and Enterprise to Blu-ray. Um, he has also directed a trio of very prestige documentaries about Trek. The Genesis Effect, Engineering the Wrath of Calm, which was created for the 35th anniversary of that film. Uh, the Journey to the Silver Screen, about the journey to bring Star Trek the motion picture to life. And most recently, Inside the Roddenberry Vault, a really, really ambitious project, uh, which features lots of deleted scenes from the original series. I believe you've yeah, seen you've some of this. Picked it up, right, Paul? You, yeah, you bought a copy. So, since recording this episode, I have gone straight online and uh, bought, picked this up, and I'm really enjoying it so far. It's incredible, and and uh, and as you will say later on, it's like his crowning achievement, I think. But the, the, there's no understanding, like really. Uh, understands what makes excellent bonus material and he knows exactly what fans would dream for in terms of like what if they could make a wish list of what content they mm -hmm. want for you know some of their most beloved shows starting with the next generation this he's produced the goods and uh, so it's great to talk to him he, he really talks about like how he got the job in the first place by like, meeting his heroes from yeah. the show and yeah. getting to work on something he is a massive yeah. fan of he was and definitely actually, a fan first wasn't he and having access to the materials and access that only a fan could dream of but then producing like the highest quality behind the scenes you could imagine for these for these shows and films and, I, and as a big DVD fan myself like you know from the beginning of that thing, <laughs> this was the best interview for you ever wasn't it That's I know, we get to chat just like features it, and I, specs I, and yeah absolutely I love all this stuff you know and I think I think it's it, the golden age of you know bonus features uh, may be behind us, but I think Roger's doing his utmost to keep it alive. Um, also, we would be remiss in not mentioning that uh, Roger has just produced a narrative film, Aliens Ate My Homework, which is now available on Netflix in the US and Canada. So you can go and check that out now. It actually stars William Shatner um, in a role in that film. So any Star Trek fan probably going to be interested in checking that out. Uh, so if you're a UK listener, use a uh, virtual proxy network uh, <laughs> to, uh, to obtain your YouTube. Is that how you say VPN? VPN, is that it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, or they might bring it to UK Netflix at, at some point. What well, one would hope, one would hope. But at the moment, it's it's available on Netflix in the US and Canada. Um, so go and check it out if you are a US or Canadian listener. Um, also, we should mention that during this episode, uh, there is occasionally a slight bit of mobile, what appears to be mobile phone interference. Um, not quite sure I how think it's that, the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quite sure how that happened. Um, you know, we always make sure we obviously have all our cell phones off during any kind of recording. Um, but something happened occasionally you'll notice something come up but you know it's still perfectly listenable and roger had such amazing content we didn't really want to cut too much of it 
um, because it is totally worth listening to. I mean, this is this is the geekiest the show has ever got, hasn't it? Yeah, yo, and that's that's a that's a treat. That's okay. <laughs> saying something. Okay, like uh, so. Buckle in, listeners. You know, yeah, buckle in <laughs> and enjoy the ride because yeah. Roger is going to take and, you. And thanks again to Roger for journey. Thanks again to Roger for chatting to us for so long as well. Nearly missing a meeting just to keep on chatting. So yeah, you, you could tell when it's a passion somebody's where they were, were potentially miss a meeting. To be yeah. Talk about what they love, um, and uh, thanks again to uh, Bob Salin who was uh, instrumental in setting this up for us. Uh, as always, thanks to Bob, a real advocate for the show, and yay, it made for a fantastic interview. We hope to have Roger back again at some point to talk track because I mean, you know, he, he really has some real insight into the series. So enjoy the show. about cast Star Trek credentials. Yeah, big time fan. I I've been I've been a I've been a Star Trek fan since I can remember. My uh you know, my mom was a big fan. She was part of that generation that that started watching it, you know, in college in the in the early 70s after it left the air and it found its way into syndication, you know, nationally throughout the US and you know, it was playing, you know, around 5 p.m. Uh, stations were counter-programming the news with Star Trek reruns. And so an entire generation of young viewers uh, got hooked. And, and my mom was part of that group. So she introduced me to it at a really early age. I also think, like, you know, one of the documentaries you worked on was the Journey to the Silver Screen. Star yeah, Trek, which, covers, much, yeah. which covers that era. Yeah. Did, you, did you interview your mom for that? that? <laughs> <laughs> no, she wouldn't do the interview for that. But, but certainly... That that is the era in which she and you know and most fans that that help you know resurrect Star Trek. That's when they came in. You know that's when it sort of found a new a new audience that you know that ultimately led to the to the resurrection. Well, so yeah, it's the first documented like fan power actually getting things off the ground. Really, you went through on that documentary a few of, like the aborted attempts to bring it back, which we yeah. found quite fascinating. We were talking about the motion picture and like it's you know, ridiculous budget that, you know, but it was factoring in all of those, you know, attempts. Expenses. Mm -hmm. yeah. All those expenses were factored in. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I tried very hard to uh, get an in. Well, I mean, look, we, a lot of these people don't really want to come back and talk about something that never came to fruition, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, uh, but so, so for me, when we were covering that era of, of Star Trek, my, my ideal goal was to really, you know, um, reveal behind the curtains and see you know what these films were about and if you if you watch the documentary you know sometimes we have script pages we have conceptual art that we sort of you know cut up into 2.5d animation pieces and and utilize to help give you a little bit of this of the of an understanding of what they were going for visually and and by the way one of those designs by Ralph McQuarrie I think is what they used for the uh, discovery ship as the starting point for the inspiration if I'm not mistaken yeah it's got a very 70s feel from the poster for a discovery mm -hmm. where the ship and it's got those very kind of like dramatic kind of like rocketeer almost lines to it <coughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah and I think that that really does recall the 70s and what could have that been with phase two um, and no, well, that was actually that goes back to the I believe that goes back to the Philip Kaufman movie, the um, Planet of the Titans um, that uh, Ralph McQuarrie did paintings for. And, and I tried really hard to get Phil Kaufman to do an interview for the for the journey <laughs> to the silver screen documentary. And oddly enough, we did get through to him. Um, we I had a great phone call with his son, who is working with him now. And they were they were developing a film in london i believe so uh philip was in in london with his son and i had a great conversation with the son and 
talk to him about how this is one of the great lost eras of Star Trek. You know, there are so many myths out there surrounding what the script would have been, what this movie would have been. And how this, on the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, was really the 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 best possible opportunity for Phil Kaufman to come out and tell the world what his vision of Star Trek, um, you know, would have been. And 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 he was up for it. The the only challenge we had that because it was the 50th anniversary project, we had a very strict um, delivery date to Paramount, so that you know the the box set could come out the on you know on the anniversary in September of that year. And you know Phil couldn't commit to doing it at that time, so it was heartbreaking because I I think this is the closest anyone's gotten to to Phil Kaufman agreeing to to actually go into you know go on camera or go on the record. Uh, about what it is he had in mind. So uh, when people ask me, what's the one thing that you would have changed about that 50th anniversary project? I would say if I had a little bit more time to deliver that documentary, like two or three months later, uh, would have been great because we might have had Phil Kaufman out there. So. I guess that's the situation, isn't it? Where you think with the 50th anniversary coming up, now's the chance to get anyone who might even in the slightest, get on board because it's a you know it's the, it's the real big one. So that's how we that's how we got uh, Bob Salin who. In my opinion, is one of the great unsung heroes of, of the Star Trek universe. Yeah, I mean, agree more, yeah. Wrath of Khan was really a game changer for the franchise. And yes, everyone thinks Wrath of Khan. They think Nick Meyer, and absolutely, Nick Nick was the creative force behind that project and had a unique vision and really made that film, uh, in my opinion, a masterpiece. You know, something that really appealed to um, to a wider audience. Uh, but you know, Bob was really the, the guy driving that engine for for the run of it. Um, it's terrific to get him on the record, wasn't it? Like actually appearing in your documentary, that sort of like spurred him on to do. I think more just sort of tell mm-hmm. the story of his involvement because you you see Harv Bennett kind of take on the torch after that, and you kind of yeah. think it, that it, it too was was mostly mostly him, and it was you know it was much more of a collaboration uh, with Bob. Yeah, yeah. Harv, Harv Bennett brought him in. Look, Harv, you know, Harv was a big time TV producer at the time, and he had a lot lot of shows he was juggling simultaneously so you know even though he was really responsible for the bottom line on this on this film you know he couldn't be there on a day-to-day basis to really run the ship and be on set and be at the office and fly to ILM to look at storyboards and you know he that that was Bob you know and and to a certain extent also Ralph Winter who came in um, uh, during the making of that movie as an executive at Paramount and really helped with post-production and, and VFX and down the road when, when um, you know, when Bob Salen decided not to come back for the other movies, it was Ralph who took over as, as the kind of lead physical production guy and Harv still being sort of the executive producer that was overseeing everything from, you know, higher up. So it was a unique dynamic that not a lot of people had explored in all the, the, the previous Star Trek Content that had been that had, that had been created for the home video releases of the movie. Everyone just thinks of oh, that's the Harv Bennett era, and yes, it, it was the Harv Bennett era because he kind of like Rick Berman, you know, down later on, he was the figurehead. Uh, but you know, there were other people that that were there in the trenches, like Bob Salen and and Ralph Winter, that I really wanted to, um, you know, to. Um, I mean, I really wanted their work to be finally explored on on these documentaries, their contributions, really. Mm. Um, Roger, before we get really deep into all these various Star Trek documentaries you've been behind, what I wanted to ask is, you know, how did you get involved in the first place? Because you've now built up quite a body of work in regards to Star Trek. How did that first come about? I I think it was back in 
I want to say 2010, 11, maybe that CBS uh, worldwide, the the worldwide distribution group for home video started having conversations about remastering next gen and, you know, releasing it in, in high definition. And, uh, when I first, I actually first heard of it through my, my friend, Anna Barreto, who was an executive, still an executive at CBS. Um, we were working together on something else. We, we, uh, we produced a documentary called, uh, the table with Guillermo del Toro and George Takei and Armin Shimmerman. And oh yeah. I watched the trailer people. for that today. It looks really interesting actually. Yeah, it's a really interesting story about um, um, a group of Hollywood hopefuls that meet every week at a at a restaurant in L.A. and they're mentored by people like you know like like George and Armin and and others um, and Mark Zakri and his wife Elaine who started the group uh, and Anna had decided to follow them around for a year because she felt it would be interesting to see how the lives of these people might change in the course of a year through this mentoring, you know, this weekly mentoring. So bless her heart, she went in, you know, every week and went to those meetings and filmed the meetings and then followed some of the people that were in the group for a year. And then at one point, you know, like any filmmaker, you just get to the point where you have so much footage and you've assembled a cut of the movie and you want someone else to see it and, and give you some input. And I think she was also having issues with Mark Sakri, uh, the the lead subject of the movie in terms of what it should be. And so they both called me in and said, look, just can you watch this thing and, and give us some insights? And at, at the time, I had just finished producing a film for Ray Bradbury, uh, Chrysalis, for E1, which ended up being his last film before he passed away. Uh, and so I had a little bit of time before starting my next thing, and and I found it pretty compelling actually that that you know you follow these these people through a year of hustling in Hollywood, uh, and so whatever I'm in the edit bay with Anna, and she's like you know CBS Anna knew I was a huge Star Trek fan obviously any anyone who spends time with me knows that <laughs> especially because especially because my office is littered with spaceships and you know miniatures of the ships and you know everything from the old school AMT kits to the to the Eagle Moss stuff that is coming out now. Like you, you go to my office and you, you cannot help but notice that I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Um, so Anna said, you know, CBS is thinking of um, rebuilding uh, TNG in HD like they did for TOS, uh, um, you know, a few years ago. And the moment she said that, I, I just basically told her, you have to bring me in for a meeting. Uh, uh, because my feeling with TOS and some of these other projects that had gotten that kind of treatment on home video was that it was fantastic. They did a great job with the technical side of things, but the ancillary component of, of the package, you know, the, the special features, the bonus content, never approached one of the shows from a, a multi-part definitive angle of, you know, what someone like, um, you know, these kind of multi-part documentaries that break everything down. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's a there's a fantastic documentary uh, filmmaker made, <clears throat> filmmaker Ken Burns who's done documentaries on everything from jazz to the Civil War and you know they're these massive three or five hour things that when you watch them together you've really gotten uh, you know the full picture on every aspect of any one part of history and I felt like it would be amazing to to document the development the creation the making and ultimately the the, the wrapping up of a show in that matter with multi part pieces that would connect to one another that when we finish off the, the the special features disc of season one, 
and you go to the special features disc of season two, that story continues right there, you know. That, and it was also the, the 25th anniversary of Next Gen coming up, so I, I was dreaming that we could get all of them together for a cast reunion. So I had this very aggressive plan for for kind of um, breaking down the, the, the making of the show and celebrating it in that manner. And Anna got me the meeting, actually, with uh, Phil Bishop, who is the, the on, on the West Coast. He's the, the head of that group. And and with Ken Ross, who runs all of all of you know CBS um, Home Entertainment, so, and I came in with this very aggressive pitch, and I thought never in a million years are they going to go for this, <laughs> and oddly enough, they said, well, we've never done anything like this, and if there's a show that that deserves that is is Star Trek, so, let's give it a go, and from that point on, my life just became a, a whirlwind, for three or four years as we just jumped right in and ended up producing something like. Uh, 60 to 80 hours of all new content for for next gen on blu-ray for uh, complete season collections for the single discs of the two-parters for the ncm fathom theatrical events we were doing for the first three seasons which had a half hour documentary also that played theatrically that i put together then going into enterprise which cbs decided to release on blu-ray simultaneously and Basically the same approach, cast reunions, feature-length documentaries for every season. Then in the middle of that, I think we did Star Trek Origins for TOS. Then, And then that led to the 50th, which was the Roddenberry Vault, which was, of all the things I did, was the most complicated. And we can go into detail on that one later, but one of the most complex things we ever had to do. And then simultaneously, the 50th. Uh, ultimate collection with all the TV episodes of TOS and the six classic movies and that, you know, bonus disc with, you know, two hours of content with the journey to the silver screen and the Wrath of Khan director's cut at the same time. So it was just madness. It, it was when I look back on it, it was just it was madness. But I am very proud of all the work. I think what we said we would do on that initial meeting with the, the heads of CBS was exactly what we delivered, and 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 I'm very proud of that. And you know, and we won the Saturn Award two years in a row, and uh, the Home Video um, Media Award. Uh, so you know, all these, it got the recognition that I, I was hoping it would get, and 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 maybe shifted the paradigm a little bit. Where now, you know, with some of these other home video releases that have come out in the following years, other uh, studios and, and also CBS have kind of tried to take this perspective when it comes to creating the the uh, special features well you see you talked about there the accolades you got you missed off the coveted bitsy award the from, bitsy from the digital bits from my good friend bill hunt yeah 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 i've got it here it's like you he uh, says oh bill hunt's an old friend of yours like uh yeah and uh, i mean i've been following that site for like you know almost 18 years now me too <laughs> been, i still I've have been, a dvd fan from though. the beginning <laughs> and so he's always had like the inside scoop on like charles de la Rizuka's, um so alien anthology and, and stuff. So, you know, to hear, like, you get a Bitsy Award, that meant uh, I was good. I like that. <laughs> no, that was great. And, and Bill was very supportive. Bill always, you know, reviewed the, the the releases and promoted them on the website. And, you know, and he knows this better than anyone. He's been there since the inception of this, this format and kind of that revolution. Um, so it was great. It was really, really great. Um, he would even come to the Comic-Con panels. I, I saw him... I don't know, like a year ago or so, when we had we had a, a series of screenings at the American Cinematheque um, at the Egyptian Theater uh, for the 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 original classic films, and in between the films, we were showing segments from the Journey to the Silver Screen, and I got to moderate 
uh, live Q and A's with Nick Meyer, with Bob Salin, with Kirk Thatcher, with you know uh, Charles uh, Stephen Charles Jaffrey, all the pr- producers of those films, and um, and Bill was there. He's been incredibly supportive. And just talk about like actually the format. You know, it, it was kind of like going into this project around 2009. Blu-ray being out a couple of years. Was it like? I mean, was it CBS really embracing the idea of like Blu-ray being the thing that was going to be the future, or was it like let's do this in HD because of the potential for streaming HD content as it is now. Do you think they we've seen that was gonna be big on the horizon? Well the driving the driving force for that for making that decision was CBS home entertainment. So obviously, you know, that department was responsible for getting the green light to spend the money on, on those masters. So it becomes their responsibility initially to to make that money back. So the big push was Blu-ray, certainly. Uh, years later, the you know having those HD masters, I think they went on to, I think the first people to get those HD masters was Sci-Fi Channel internationally, not in the U.S. Um, so then eventually they went to um, all the other uh, outlets that had distribution on on next gen. But, but you know, the initial push was to sell Blu-rays, obviously. Yeah, I think it's massive that, you know, you have to have those HD masters to create new fans almost. You know, there's mm-hmm. some people who wouldn't have, like, probably got into the show as much if they'd just seen the, mm, the tired... The thing to buy. The, yeah. All the tired, like, TV, like, standard def ones that were just, you know, being sort of churned out. You know, the fact they look so fresh, you know, helps people kind of rediscover the show. Absolutely. And I, I mean, it was it was heartbreaking to see what some outlets, some broadcasters were doing with those old SD masters by stretching them uh, to, to 185 Heresy. or 60. <laughs> it was it was terrible. I remember when we were working on all this stuff. Um, I think it was BBC America that was airing next gen SD masters, you know, stretched to 69. And it was just horrific. We expect better, um, better from auntie. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I don't know who made that decision, but apparently at that point, a lot of cable networks and broadcasters were doing that because they were starting to just really focus on HD 69 content. <laughs> they would take SD masters and stretch them. Um, so but it was see, awful. The so, Simpsons cropped is like a, a horrible sight. The cropping and all that kind of thing. It's just it's it's really good that you push to keep it in the original ratio for for the, the set. I mean, I can't imagine it was ever discussed that it would be anything other than that. But it, it's it's great that you kept it that way because I know they reformatted the wire for Blu-ray. Yeah, didn't they do the Battlestar well? Galactica? The original Battlestar Galactica yeah. was reformatted for the Blu-ray, but. Universal made the right decision there by including also the, you know, the original one three three to one ratio um, episodes in HD. So you know the the modern fan who feels like they have to watch everything in sixty nine, could watch those versions. But you know we're not stuck living with just those. You know we can see the original framing. The by the way, it's also about the original intent of the filmmakers. You know you these people were framing for one three three and utilizing that frame to tell their story. So. Who are we to come down the pike 20, 30 years later and, and change their work? Um, and, and fortunately for Next Gen, the decision was a much easier one because they didn't really protect for 16.9. You know, you look you look at some of the frames when you see the full aperture of it and, you know, you have C-stands on, on the edges or you see Cosmo, the uh, script supervisor, you see his help, <laughs> um, or, you know, you see a light stand, you know, um, so he, there was no choice, really, for those two reasons, creative intent and the fact that there was no information there that could be mm. utilized. And the only choice would have been to then ruin it by, you know, giving you a smaller 
piece of the frame and blowing it into 16.9, which is just, in my opinion, moronic. Oh, yeah. Uh, an interesting, like, uh, with the Buffy d- DVD sets, where in the UK they were released in widescreen, but they, were, they weren't protecting for that outside. Because there was boom mics, and you could see the fisheye lens and stuff like that that they were using. It's just, uh, when people don't really know what they're doing when they're transferring something, it can lead to disastrous results. So, but what, what I think, reading some of the reviews of your next-gen work, is that the, the, the real uber-fans of the show are really beside themselves about the you know attention to detail, having to recreate some of the CGI, early CGI models, but so lovingly that they really love that. I tell you, the, the credit for all that has to go to Mike and Denise Okuda. They were... They were the guardians of of the show, really, and of that original creative intent of the people who worked on it. You know, people like Dan Curry, like Rob Legato, um, you know, and all the episodic directors. You know, those, you know, Mike and Denise were there back in the day when these shows were being produced, you know. And um, they were very aware of the decisions that were being made, and they understood why those decisions happened. So they came into this doing everything they could to, to you know to protect that show and that original creative intent and uh, and they worked insanely long hours on this project they were really it was a heroic effort from from the two of them well this is the thing isn't it um roger on the um hd release of tos they kind of cg'd some of the effects didn't they and on Next Generation, you didn't do that, did you? Because it's funny, because I was watching uh, TNG on Netflix, and I turned up and said to Paul, like, oh, it's amazing what they've done to the effects, isn't it? They've really spruced them up. And Paul was like, no, they didn't They didn't do the same thing. They didn't do any CG on it. It just looks that good in HD. No, it, that, that's actually true. It, it looks that crisp and, and clear and beautiful that you think it's CG, but it's not because the... You know, the methodology for the VFX work on Next Gen was motion control. So, uh, and this was the late 80s to the mid 90s. So, all those pieces of film, all those multiple passes on each, on each VFX sequence were still stored away in a, in a salt mine, uh, here in the States. And all that, uh, all those negatives were pulled out of storage and rescanned, um, and, uh, you know, corrected recomposited some of them had to be sort of balanced out because sometimes what happens with film is that it gets warped so uh when you have a shot that has six layers on it basically you know the enterprise model the enterprise model lighting pass the nacelle pass the the deflector pass then whatever planet is in the background whatever other element is there you know you're talking about some shots that have six passes and when the film has warped a little bit and you paste them all together, it's unstable because they're, you know, they don't really line up beautifully. So the guys at CBS Digital painstakingly stabilized all these elements and recomposited, and it just looks beautiful. It looks like it was produced just now, uh, but it's all original camera elements. Um, Actually, better than now, I think. <laughs> yeah. Because well, yeah, better than now because you got the best of both worlds. You have something that was originated in 35 millimeter film, not on HD video with beautiful model work by ILM on that first, you know, pilot. And ultimately they reused those models. And then Rob Legato, who went on to win an Academy Award for Titanic and a lot of other great films. You know, those guys were doing groundbreaking work on a weekly basis in 35 millimeters. So to scan that and have access to that imagery is just 
you know, stunning, stunning what you're going to – the result is going to be stunning. Oddly enough, on the sampler disc on the next level, which was that disc that was released um, a couple of months, I think like six months before the first season came out, and it had Encounter at at Farpoint and a couple of other episodes, including Sins of the Father, I believe. Uh, Going back to your your comment about the CGI ships, uh, that episode had a missing element where – you know, the people at CBS Digital did a, an amazing job at, at finding all these elements and, um, you know, organizing them. But uh, by the time that sampler disc had to come out, they hadn't found an element of the Klingon ship. So the episode had to be finished earlier because it was going to be on the sampler disc. Um, and so they utilized a CG, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they u- utilized a, a CG Klingon ship for that one release on Blu-ray. Cut to a few months later when now uh, the team at CBS Digital is working on that batch of episodes, you know, um, that includes Sins of the Father, I believe, season three or four. And Sarah uh, from from the team over there finds the missing uh, film element. So they went back, reopened up that master and put it back in. So when you buy that, when you if you actually ended up buying that season set, the version of Sins of the Father has the model element in it, you know, and the the sampler has, unfortunately, that CGI one. But I don't think anyone notices the difference, really. No, I mean, uh, there was a few occasions where there was a couple of, like, minutes that just, just never turned up. Have, have they ever turned up since? I know there was, you know, we had to upscale a couple of minutes. I just wondered, has those bits turned up since? I don't think so, because by the end of the, the project, everything was sent, was vaulted and sent back. So, um... You know, there wasn't a continuing effort to to look through these these assets. Uh, so um, no, that's the only story I know where something was finished or we thought it was finished, and then we found the element later on. Uh, but even those upscaled uh, pieces just you know fit right in. So because remember, after upscaling and all that, it the whole episode goes through a, a master pass of color timing and grading. So uh, everything gets blended quite quite beautifully you know based on obviously the the original look of the of the episode when it was finalized um, in the 80s or 90s um so i think it still looks stunning uh and you know we we would watch some of these at cbs digital and just you know high grade monitors and it just held up so beautifully my my annoyance at tng even watching it as a as a kid in the in the late 80s and the early 90s was that was that the blacks never looked black on, on, on NTSC broadcast, you know? So all those shots where you saw the magic, the majesty of the galaxy and all that black and then the little stars always just kind of looked muddy and grayish, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that, that carried over to the VHS releases, even to the Pioneer Laserdisc releases, which I, I still have a bunch of them in my garage. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and oddly enough, it also carried over to the Paramount DVDs from the early 2000s, which was, which just again, it's it just goes to show the limitations of NTSC standard def. You know, uh, I've heard it's there's never an acronym for that. It's like never the same color twice. <laughs> well, yeah, that or just it, well, again, it's 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 limitations. You know, and and when you're pushing it with those kinds of visuals, at times it's going to break up. You know, but, uh, originally actually. One of the conversations they had had, and this was before I became involved in, 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 in the project, but one of the conversations they had had early on when they were looking at how much are they going to spend on this and how to do it, someone, I don't know who, someone uh, you know, suggested, well, maybe we upscale everything. Uh, and, and they did a test with 
best of both worlds, I believe. I think the test footage came from best of both worlds part two, if I'm not mistaken, because I, I did see the test down the road and it was just horrific. It was just sinful. Um, and when, you know, to their credit, you know, when Ken Ross and Phil Bishop saw it, they said, no way in hell we're doing this. Uh, if we do this, we're going back to the original camera negative and we're rebuilding this thing from the ground up. And, and that is what they ended up doing. And I think out of the three shows, Voyager, Deep Space Nine and Next Gen, it was the Next Gen, of course, is the most popular. But it's also the one where it actually, even though it's such a massive archival project, you know, the elements were there on film. You didn't have to recurate a great number of CGI effects, which is kind of the thing yeah. that's holding back DS9 and Voyager. Isn't that right from being done? Yeah, from with DS9 from season three on, I mean, look, when you get to an episode like Way of the Warrior, uh, you know, all the way to the final season, those massive space battles, you know, it's mostly CGI components. So you don't really have any files that you can load onto a computer now and, and, and have those scenes come up and then maybe, you know, remap them, retexture them and, and render them at HD. There's no such thing. You would literally have to eyeball them. And recreate them, start recreating all the elements, uh, lining them up, you know, and redoing all those shots. And that's that's a massive endeavor and a very expensive one. Seasons one, two, and three, it's mostly miniature work, you know. So it's the typical, it was Image G, the same company that was doing the motion control work on, on Next Gen. Uh, so it was the same methodology, Image G having the big models on stage and doing motion control with six, seven, eight passes, whatever it ended up being, and compositing them. So... Technically, the first couple of years of DS9 could come out on Blu-ray, and it wouldn't be that complicated. It would just be the same process as Next Gen. But, you know, CBS can't commit to doing that until they have a solution for the other seasons, because you can't start and stop after season two, you know? It's a, it, that's not going to work out. But um, it is the dream project for, you know, Mike and Denise Okuda and myself and a lot of other people, because from a storytelling point of view... The complexity of DS9 was just wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, and and the visuals are just so dynamic, and and you know that space station, and uh, again the that entire Dominion War story arc, the, those space battles. I mean, could you imagine seeing that on HD mm-hmm. nowadays? I mean, yeah, mind blowing. Yeah, did but- you guys did you guys watch DS9 simultaneously with Next Gen, or or was it mostly Next Gen? Because I know a lot of people who were Next Gen fans who never even watched DS9 back then, which to me is sacrilege. I'm yeah, like, well, was we... there kind of a divide between, because they were two very yeah. different shows, weren't they? So was there a bit of a fan battle between them or at the time? Yeah, there was, it was just, look, it was, it was a very, it was very different. It looked very different. Mm. The tone of it was very different. The, the stories were, you know, to a certain extent, it was the same dramatic framework, but the stories that we're telling, you know, by the end of the episode, they didn't really wrap up that nicely as Next Gen. Next Gen was, you know, the Enterprise would pull up to a planet. There was some issue, some anomaly, some circumstance going on on the planet's surface with the society or the people there. And, you know, by the end of the, by the, end of the episode, Picard had solved it and they would all move on to the next planet with no repercussion whatsoever. DS9 was not that. It was, it was these people st- stuck in the same place having to deal with each other, and their story kept growing and changing and evolving. And I can see how if you didn't watch all the episodes, you come back a season later and you go, what the hell's going on here? Um, uh, and because of that massive continuity it had. And I can also see how some people who are, were used to that bright, cheerful look of next gen that you know, as as uh, my buddy Seth MacFarlane, who's a big Next Gen fan, says, you know, the bridge of the Enterprise looked 
like the nicest hotel lobby of the future. You know, it was that yeah. comfy and that inviting. You know, you looked at DS9 and from a visual point of view, it was not that inviting, but it was dramatic and compelling, you know. So I think that's why Next Gen really crossed over and, and it, it reached an audience beyond the original TOS fans or genre fans, you know. By the fifth season, I think, wasn't it year five where the that week's next gen episode had higher ratings than the world series of baseball i mean it's just that's you know that's just really amazing and i remember there was a a two-page ad in in variety basically celebrating that so uh it was a fact that the show connected with a larger audience uh but it was just so you know ds9 was kind of the ugly duckling of the family but from a storytelling point of view it was just really compelling and i would hope that at some point because viewers now are more used to that type of storytelling, you know, longer arcs, which can go to darker places. You know, we're in a post Game of Thrones environment. Uh, Game of Thrones. I mean, DS9 is, you know, a PBS show next to Game of Thrones, you know, uh, but it's uh, because Game of Thrones has really pushed the envelope. But uh, but I think in this post Game of Thrones world, maybe viewers, if they revisited DS9, would feel like it belongs in in the yeah, landscape it's ahead of its time. now yeah. exactly more than it did back then well yeah Roger I should catch you up with the context of our podcast just so you're up to speed basically the idea of the podcast is that we're kind of viewing Star Trek from a non-hardcore fan perspective because before we started the podcast basically Matt he'd only ever seen the first two JJ films uh, Paul was the biggest kind of fan previously who'd like watched all of TNG and that and I'd kind of watched all the films and just kind of smatterings of episodes here and there of TNG and DS9 so for a lot of this we're seeing it for the first time as we're doing the podcast wow all right well yeah that you know that's in a way that's really exciting because i wish i could go back to that feeling of watching something i love so much for the very first time you know yeah well, i'm getting that feeling with deep space nine like you say because it does feel so modern so for me seeing it for the first time now it seems like the perfect uh, time to be doing it and how do you feel watching it are you as excited about it as maybe you are about some of the other shows on the air right now or yeah, do you definitely. still feel like it's of another era it doesn't feel like another era at all. Like for me, because I, I did have you know basic knowledge of um, Kirk and Spock and the original crew, and then having gone through the next gen movies and now uh, dipped a toe into the next gen series, like this was for me the first time everything changed up, like new crew, uh, you know, new characters, new new situation. So I'm really excited to delve in. And just from the few, I've only dabbled in a few so far because we've only just done the episode where we just did uh, the pilot and a guest pick episode, and I've kind of just started um, going back through it now. What's the one you read? That's a great pilot. That's a great pilot. Yeah, so I just watched um, Duet from season one. Oh, great, great episode. One of my favorites, directed by my good buddy Jim Jim Conway, who is one of the great TV directors. He's directing on The Orville now and The Magicians. Um, Jim Jim is amazing. That's that's a great yeah, episode. That episode blew my mind. It, it is. I've just. Been you should have Jim. Guys. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you should have Jim on your podcast. He is we're, amazing. We'd love to. I mean, if you yeah, if you want to put in a good word for us, mate, we we, def, <laughs> we definitely have him on for sure. Oh, absolutely. Reach out to him, Jim. Jim, I met Jim. You know, working on these Star Trek projects because he goes back to season one of Next Gen. He he's been directing Trek. From season one of Next Gen all the way to the last season of Enterprise well, he's and the big episodes of the Trek universe. He is, yeah. He did, you know, he did that massive pilot for Enterprise, Broken Bow, which at the time had been the most expensive thing they had done. It was like a fifteen million dollar pilot. Wow. Uh, 
but Jim is great. Jim was going to, I just produced a film for Universal, for Universal called Alien Saved My Homework. And Jim was going to be the, was the director on that film, but then our schedule changed and um, he was on The Orville and The Magicians and um, he couldn't, he couldn't direct the movie. We got Sean McNamara, who's another great director, but you know, Jim was just fascinating to work with him because here's a guy who was great from a visual point of view, but he understands drama quite well. And if you look at Duet, mm. there's a simplicity to that episode, um, but dramatically it's so powerful. So just every uh, every ounce of screen time is being used so so well and the script and the direction and the performances are all so tight and it's just it's one of my favorite types of ball episodes one of those ones that just really focus in on a idea and absolutely knock it out of the park it's it's fantastic yeah star trek used to do especially during that age where you know they didn't have a lot of money you got to remember that the rick berman star trek shows didn't have the kind of money that the kind of money that genre shows have mm. nowadays so you know, they had a pattern for the season of how much money they were going to spend. And, you know, halfway through the year, maybe, or even before that, they'd realize, you know, we have some bigger episodes that need a little more money. So, you know, you borrow from another episode to give it to the, to the bigger one. So they, would, they were forced to do about two bottle shows a year. And bottle shows is the industry term for an episode that uses a minimal amount of sets, a minimal amount of actors, and you shoot the majority of it, you know, in that simplified yeah. form. So um, it's funny because it feels like it should restrict what you can do, but it kind of makes you more creative and really kind of go wild within a certain uh, parameter. It does. When you get to Enterprise, if you do, there's a great episode called Shuttle Pod One in which uh, Trip Tucker, the engineer, and Malcolm, the, the security officer on the ship, are stuck in a drifting shuttle pod that is losing power, life support. And so they're going to die in a matter of hours and they're freezing to death and they've run out of supplies. And it's just a you know, two-hander, you know, the two of them, it's, it could have been a great play, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just beautiful because all of it takes place inside that crammed little shuttle pod and it's just acting. Uh, so Definitely check that one out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we're going to get to enterprise, uh, soon Roger, because basically what we're doing at the moment is we're doing an episode on each of the series and getting, um, a guest on who's a big fan of mm-hmm. that series and getting them to pick one for us to watch that they think really kind of shows off the show well. Um, so our friend uh, Greg Locke is coming on for the Enterprise episode. He's a massive fan of that, um, and he's gonna... from the from the original airings of the show or from recent times. Did, when did he become a massive fan um, of Enterprise? He, he, he's he's been a fan way back when. I mean, he's he's recently directed a Star Trek fan film, so he he's really been embedded in it since childhood. I think. Okay, good. Because Enterprise is another interesting example of people kind of you know ignoring it back then and then years later more more people started discovering it and going well this is not bad (laughs) so uh especially when you get to um you know the work of manny cotto and judy and garfield reef stevens in those later seasons where they really started to connect it with the original you know with the tos timeline um well, I think you made a documentary about Enterprise, didn't you, called Before Her Time? So you were obviously, I presume, saying there that you thought it should have got the seven-season epic treatment like TNG, DS9, and Voyager. Absolutely. I think it's in that documentary because I did, I did like 
I guess it was four seasons, so we did multiple documentaries for each each Blu-ray set. But I think before her time, which is the decommissioning enterprise documentary, one of the things we do is we have Manny Cotto, who was the showrunner, and Judy and Garvey Stevens, who are two of the best Star Trek writers ever. They wrote, you know, some of the best novels like Prime Directive and Federation and the Kirk trilogy from that started with Ashes of Eden, and then he went on. They went on to write on the shows, um, and they wrote that great. Vulcan arc in season four that started with the forge. Um, so those guys and Mike Sussman and Andre Bormani, all those writers in that documentary start sharing their ideas about what season five, six and seven would have been. And, and their idea for bringing back um, Captain Kirk was pretty wild. Uh, and their ideas for, you know, what to do about the mirror universe and what to do about connecting uh, you know, enterprise to to what we had seen or heard in TOS were just really brilliant, but unfortunately they did not get a chance to realize them. Um, but I, I do love Enterprise as well. I thought the pilot was one of the best pilots that have been put together for Star Trek. After it, the show just kind of started wandering and you know trying to do the same thing that had been done on Next Gen and Voyager. And then really with season three, Manny kind of brought it back to life. And with season four, it was just it felt like it was the right precursor to TOS, but too little, too late, unfortunately. But it's it's very how like some of the abandoned concepts from Star Trek have their way of sort of reappearing in later iterations. Um, you know, there's never an idea that's on the shelf forever. So it would be interesting to see how Discovery moves on and perhaps some of those things get plucked back off the shelf. You know, if that's set again, pre Kirk universe, isn't it? So yeah, I think that's ten years right before, yeah. right before, I guess, right before the. Uh, the uh, the original series. You've been watching Discovery, Roger. I, you know, I went to the premiere. CBS invited me to that premiere they had at the at the Dome at the ArcLight Theater here, and we saw, I guess, the first two hours spliced yeah. together. Uh, and I haven't had a chance to see anything else. But now that it's completed, uh, that the first year is completed, I'll probably you know finally try and take some time to watch all of it uh, and catch up. It was it was when the show started. I was off in Vancouver shooting a movie, so that that kind of consumes your life. That must be quite uh, strange for you to, to work so uh, intensely within the Star Trek universe and then to be able to sit down and basically binge watch a new Star Trek series. That must yeah, be quite I, a strange I, experience. Still be the fan, yeah. you know, discovering it for the first time as well, yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I, I mean, like I said, it's, it's, it's great that now you can sit down and binge watch the whole thing and have the entire experience. Too. I mean, because it is such a big universe now. So, you know, for some some people and, you know, like what the experience you guys are telling me about of now discovering DS9 and then you're going to move on to Enterprise. I mean, it's really exciting because there's such a rich universe there that, I mean, we're talking about close to a thousand hours of programming there uh, that, that, that people who were not around in the 80s or even the 90s, you know, who are fans of the genre now could dip into and, and explore and enjoy i mean I, i've to me that's fantastic it's just such a gift to have that creation that body of work you know for generations to come you know we completely agree roger because i mean one of the things we really hope with the podcast and so far you know we've been getting some really good responses on this is that not only will fans of star trek listen to the podcast but also people who perhaps hadn't dipped their toes in the water before and now through maybe you know star trek discovery or just our podcast discovering it for the first time they're kind of watching along with us and we have had a few people doing that and that's that's really cool to hear 
That's great to hear. I when I, I remember when the JJ movie started coming out, the first one in two thousand nine. Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who already back then had had children, and they were Star Trek fans, but they couldn't get their kids to watch Star Trek. They just it's slow, it's boring, whatever. Um, and um, you know that JJ movie brought a set uh, this visceral language and these dynamic, gigantic images that all of a sudden made younger viewers go, this is kind of cool, you know, and if that's what drives them into the theater to see it, you know, as long as they stick around for the thematic stuff and the, 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 the ideas that Star Trek tries to convey, then, then that's wonderful. And a lot of those kids, you know, went on to watch Next Gen on Blu-ray because their parents said, well, see, Star Trek is fun, right? So you want to watch Next Gen with me now? And they did. And they were like, this is cool, you know? So, um, so that's fantastic. That's that's the way it should be. <laughs> yeah. Can I just ask? We just touched on the movies there. And I know that, well, the one movie Blu-ray that you've able to work on was Wrath of Khan. Um, just wondered, like, you know, how close you got to perhaps working on the director's edition of Motion Picture because that's one of my favorite like DVDs, but unfortunately hasn't made it to Blu-ray yet. Did you? Is there any kind of plans in the pipeline for that? We talked about it a lot for the 50th. I mean, I, I kept saying it should be part of that, you know, TV and movie collection. Remember that really nice black box set with the uh, with the entire um, episode library and the six movies? Yeah. And the collector's pin and the postcards, all that. I, was, I just kept saying, and Mike and Denise too, the Okudas, you know, what's going to really drive sales for this thing is if you finally do an HD version of the, of the director's edition. But, you know... As, as as lame as it sounds, all these things are driven by the business side of, of you know the industry. And so when they do a profit and loss statement and they look at how expensive it would be to do that, and then they kind of analyze where the market is in terms of home video and in terms of large you know box sets like that one, they just immediately they say, well, the market can't support it right now. I know that some of the people that were involved in the actual making of that edition with Bob, you know, uh, with, with the director back in um, the early 2000s, have had conversations about maybe there's a way to do it that's, you know, more efficient and, and at a lower cost. But um, none of those conversations really got far enough for, for Paramount to pull the trigger during the 50th. So it's, it's something that... 4K now, haven't we? <laughs> Maybe look. The, the beauty of that is that there's two people there at Paramount that are that love Star Trek. Annie Caprellian, who is in in that whole group at Paramount, is as big a Star Trek fan as they come, you know. And she knows the universe inside out. She understands what fans want. Um, she works very closely with Cindy Walker over there as well. And Cindy has a great deal of respect and love for the, the Star Trek library and all the projects they've done. So, you know. So this is always. They revisit it, you know. It's they've had conversations about it, but it's about you know finding the right time, and by that I mean the moment where some sector of the market will support it uh, enough to to you know to to spend the money. So I hope it still happens. It was my dream really to have it be included in that box set, but uh, didn't happen. But but I know it will happen at some point because again, it's an important it's an important piece of the, the of Star Trek history and. As you know, the markets keep evolving, and as you now said, 4K, there will always be new opportunities to revisit the library, you know, and that is one of the great, you know, um, pieces of the library that hasn't really been exploited other than with that initial DVD release. So 
Will it happen? It has to. When? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, but when I'll it be, does... I'll be definitely I'm, getting I'll it. Be they got one sale here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one. You, you tell that to the XX. One sale. One yeah. sale. Tell that, tell that, get on the phone and call another fan and then have that fan call another. And <laughs> when you guys have reached, when you've reached I, a couple million, this thing will get the green light right away. <laughs> I just could buy the shop's worth. Like it. Um, <laughs> I, I just another kind of a very geeky question. I'm you know massive fan of Star Trek 2 and I know there's a few sort of deleted scenes that didn't make it into the director's edition. Um, did you did you go out trying to find those particular bits? Um, yeah, we couldn't find them. We couldn't find them. We saw images when we were going through the uh, through the archive at Paramount, just like still photography stuff, where you look at it and you go, "Well, this doesn't look like anything that's in the movie," you know, and um, couldn't find it. Couldn't find the the, the, the footage. Um, and again, it's always it's always a race against time with these things. You know, if you had unlimited time and you could spend a year, you know, chasing after these things. Um, Maybe you'd have better luck, but all these things, the way they happen is when the studio agrees to um, to put together a product, mm. they immediately have a release date. Yeah, so, I, I did um, see, read online that there is a, a copy at the UCLA uh, in their library, which is a work print of Trek 2, that does have some uh, of that stuff in it. Yeah, we talk, I, I think we talked to... I can't remember the name of the person, but we talked to someone, and uh, Mike and Denise Okuda looked into it, but I don't think... They found what we were looking for in in good enough condition. So, um, so and by the way, that was really late in the game when when we found out about that. I don't know if it was Nick or someone else that Nick put us in touch with uh, said that, and it was the same person that gave us access to a lot of put us in touch with the person who manages the Nick Meyer papers at the university that he um, um, donated them to. And that's how we got a lot of those uh, stills that had never been released before um, from the making of the movie that then we cut up into 2.5D and we did the camera moves on. Um, and I, I'm, the name of that person escapes me right now, but we, we did have conversations about it. Yeah, so it came within touching distance. Yeah, well, it's it, fascinating to see it. I mean, it would be great. Maybe for the 4K edition, which I, I honestly think should be, Wrath of Khan should be the first one of the original movies that goes out on 4K. Certainly it's the most popular one, and if there's one that would drive sales, you know, it would be that one. You know, if you start with motion picture, I don't think the sales would be as high. And so then the studio can say, well, see, we put out the first one and not that many people bought it. So why make any more of these 4K movie versions? Uh, so I'm hoping they would start with uh, the director's version of the director's edition of Wrath of Khan and the original theatrical uh, theatrical version of 4K. Yeah, because I think that some of the masters for um, like four, you know, uh, six, four and six are quite tired, aren't they? I mean, they do look a bit waxy. Uh, so I think there is yeah. new scans to be had, I think, later on. But, you know, again, we'll hopefully see them in the next few years. Um, Roger, I was going to say, we live in the time now of basically all of pop culture is made by the fans of it from back in the day. We've kind of done that cycle now. And, you know, as example by yourself, you know, you're making loads of Star Trek related content and such. How did it feel to go from being a fan of this stuff to being heavily involved in it and very early on kind of orchestrating, I believe, like 25 year reunion for the next generation? We, like, how did that feel? Did you get everyone you wanted to get on for that? Yeah, we did. That that was a lot of work because these guys are all over the place. You know, Patrick is 
I mean, Patrick is doing so much all the time. He's doing shows, live, you know, plays. He's in movies. He's, um, you know, he's a really busy guy. Jonathan is a one of TV's most in-demand directors. You know, uh, and and you know, they're doing conventions. They're doing. They're all over the map. So it's it's very difficult to get them all in one place uh, at the same time. But that was always the dream scenario, to just have them all together for this candid conversation. This, you know, what would be essentially a primetime TV special, which is what we did. We filmed it with, you know, I think like six HD cameras on, you know, we had a jib, we had dollies, we had everything. You watch that and it looks like it belongs on the network at 8 p.m., you know, that's a primetime special. Uh, but we happened to produce it for Blu-ray. But um, but all of them are, were a part of it. And that was just fascinating to before before we got to the group reunion with all of them, I had started filming and conducting the one-on-one -on -one interviews with them for the documentaries because that became easier since you just needed one of them at a time. You know, So whenever they were available, they'd come to CBS TV City and they'd do a sit-down with, with me and we'd film it. And that was what I used for the documentaries. So it was near the end of that that we finally had all of them together for the reunion. So... So by then I kind of knew them, you know, because I'd done two rounds of interviews with each of them. And, you know, you get to talk to them. You spend some time before the interview, after the interview. You run into them at a convention. You chat for a few minutes. So um, so I was like, oh, this is fine. I know these guys. It's going to be great. But the moment I walked onto that set, we filmed it in Canada, the, the cast reunion. We filmed it in Calgary. I just... I just turned into the 14-year-old version of myself. Who <laughs> I idolized these guys and and just just couldn't believe it. I'm like, what am I doing surrounded by all these people? It's because it's, it's a stronger sensation when they're all around you and you're you know you're sitting by the craft service table having a bite with them before they go on camera, you know. And it's just like, how the hell did I get here? You know. You resisted uh, the urge to bring along your fan script for them to read, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got the idea, guys. You know, you guys take the Enterprise, you steal the ship. Uh, and, <laughs> it's reboot time. But one more mission. Uh, you steal it from the Starfleet Museum, from the Shipyard Museum. I was like, uh, no, I haven't thought about it that much to have a pitch. But um, but uh, no, it, it is surreal. And and then to find out that they're the loveliest people on the planet. I mean, they they were all just great, uh, really supportive of what we were doing. Uh, I mean, Marina, Marina and Levar actually, even uh, before we started producing all the documentaries and the reunions and all that we had them come over to CBS Digital to look at what we were doing because LeVar is a big, big, uh, big person when it comes to technology and, 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 and the world of, uh, you know, broadcasting and filmmaking. So he wanted to see what we were doing and how we were doing this. So we had, so that day that we had scheduled LeVar to come over, Marina was, I want to come too and I see it. So we brought him in early on to see the process of scanning the film and restoring it and they were just blown away. I remember Marina was so funny. She was like, "Well, I don't think I like this because it looks too crisp now. So everyone's gonna see, everyone's gonna see the imperfections on my makeup or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> She's just a really funny person. Uh, and Lavar was fascinated by the whole process, as because you know Lavar is a filmmaker who's directed countless TV episodes and motion pictures, you know, uh, and produced a lot of stuff too. So. Uh, so that was the first encounter with them, just the two of them just hanging out with us for an afternoon at CBS Digital and as we walked them through through the, the process of it. And they were just very supportive and and they all, you know, signed and came on, came on board. And even Whoopi, I mean, even Whoopi, I, I just, again, it's just surreal to be hanging out with Whoopi Goldberg at Paramount, you know, uh, uh, and uh, all of them, John Delancey, Denise 
Crosby, uh, you know, guest stars that, you know, showed up for one or two episodes, people like Elizabeth Dennehy in The Best of Both Worlds, you know, um, they all they all came back. I think, I mean, it's been a while, but I think we shot something like 120 interviews, 120 hours of interviews uh, for those documentaries. So we got, you know, pretty much everybody. Uh, and trying it's just, to think I think it makes it someone- easier, yeah. doesn't it? When you're basically having, you know, as a fan, not being overawed by, you know, the fact that you're meeting your kind of heroes. It's just because they're so passionate about it as well. They really want this to happen. So, you know, they're so yeah. supportive of the project. Yeah, and I think also the fact that I had a very clear idea of what these documentaries would be, and I was coming from a, a background in you know in, in in production, you know, I've been in the industry for for a couple of years, you know, before I did that, and and so I wasn't coming into it, even though I was a fan and I was inside, I was like thrilled. I wasn't sitting down with them to talk to them as a fan and go, so what's your favorite episode? So what well, you know, what's the most fun you had with, you know, sitting down with Patrick and saying, you know, tell me uh, about fun times with Jonathan. You know, it's like I wasn't really interested in that. I was interested in their journey as professionals, as performers who were given this opportunity that completely changed their lives. And, you know, and, and what is that like on a day to day, on a weekly basis when you're in the machine of TV production? Because TV production is a machine. Um, so that's where our conversation started. And, and to them, that was, I think, thrilling. And it's why we have such great candid comments from them in the documentaries, because they were engaged. They didn't feel like, oh, another one of these damn interviews where I got to talk about my favorite episode. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that was never my approach, even though I am a fan and and uh, I was excited to be there with them. I was having a professional conversation with them and and it engaged them and allowed us to explore um, certain stories that they'd never really s- told on camera before or that, you know, not the same stories they tell at conventions when they're up there together having fun and joking about how, you know, when we had scenes on the bridge together, the directors hated us because, you know, we kept joking and joking and we'd waste so much time. And, you know, that's great. That's their dynamic. And they're a big family and a big group of of, of funny, talented people. But I wasn't going, I wasn't trying to document that story on, on, on my, my pieces. I was trying to just really get an understanding of how that show came to be, what were the challenges, how it continued on, how it evolved, how they evolved, how they saw it year after year, what was their take, what was their perspective on everything that was happening around them. Um, so it, it was very different, I think, from the, the other interviews they'd had to do in the past. Yeah, no, I was going to ask uh, Roger about this, because as you were saying, um, when you came on to start doing kind of Star Trek documentaries and such, you weren't a newbie to the film biz. You did have plenty of work beforehand. Um, you know, it wasn't a case of you went into the film industry with the idea of getting involved in the world of Star Trek, or I presume not. How was it you actually came, got started in your career in filmmaking? Uh, well, I went, I was, you know, I'd always wanted to, since I, as far as I can remember, since you have that moment as a kid where you decide, you know, I'm going to, when I grow up, I have to, I need a job and this is what I'm going to do. For me, it was always storytelling. I ran around with a video camera and, you know, hooking up two VCRs so I could edit, you know, from one tape to the other. So, you know, that was, that was always my plan to be able to, you know, go to film school and, and get into the industry. And, as a kid, I read a, read a lot about filmmaking, and it seemed like the 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 common element in all these people that I admired, like George Lucas, like Ron Howard, um, 
uh, John Milius, you know, uh, a lot of these guys, they all went to the USC film school here in LA. So I said to myself, I'm going to go to USC. And so that's what I did. I went to USC and I graduated high school in May of 98. Uh, two weeks later, I was here in LA and, you know, I was on campus at USC and uh, that's where it all began. And so uh, while I was there, I got an internship on Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, which at the time had become the number one show in, in the country. Tom Caltabiano, who was the co-EP on the show, got me this great opportunity and I was working, working very closely with him, with Ray Romano, and just really getting an understanding of how TV is made because I was dropped into the middle of this fully functional, you know, um, uh, machine that was cranking out episodes week after week. So I actually learned more, uh, from that experience than from, you know, a classroom, you know, reading, you know, uh, just in a lecture or reading the history of, um, of the industry, but I have both, you know, I do have that, that education where, you know, everything about film history and TV history and how things came to be. But I also had that great practical experience early on. So when the show ended, uh, when the show was ending, at some point, Ray decided he wanted to go back to do stand-up comedy. He hadn't done that, uh, you know, a, a tour really in, in years because he was so busy with the show. And so this idea was kicked around by, by again, by Tom Caltaviano, who was, was the co-EP on, on Raymond, to, to basically document Ray's tour, you know, and see what it was like for someone who had just become the highest paid actor in the history of television um, to now go back on the road like a working comic, you know, and do and do stand-up gigs every night. Uh, and so Ray liked the idea, but he didn't like the idea of hiring a big, you know, production company to do it and just get in the way of the time he was going to have away from the industry to just focus on his on his comedy and, and his, his stand-up gigs. So he said, well, why doesn't Roger do this, you know? And, and so next thing you know, I'm on tour with Ray Romano producing this, um, film that that ended up going to HBO called 95 Miles to Go, which basically chronicles race, return to stand-up. And so I was, I think I was 21 years old by then, so I was a producer on a, a film project for HBO and Think Film with the highest paid actor in the history of TV at 21 years of age. Um, and I've never stopped working since. You know, I've produced, like I said, I produce films for people like Ray Bradbury, and I've on everything from directed music videos to commercials to, you know, media for theme park attractions to Star Trek specials to movies like, you know, Aliens Ate My Homework, which premieres on Netflix next week from Universal. And, you know, that has Bill Shatner, <laughs> you know, voicing uh, an intergalactic talking plant that also pilots a spaceship, you know. So, uh, you know, and, and the screenplay was written by Judy and Garfield Reeve Stevens of Star Trek fame. And. Todd Masters and Mike Westmore Jr. worked together on the creatures, you know, and um, uh, I'm sure I'm, oh, Mike Okuda, obviously from Star Trek, did all the graphics and, um, you know, the motion graphics and emblems and symbols, just like he did on the Enterprise uh, from Next Gen on, uh, you know, so it was so you've got just some practical aliens in your movie then. You've got some Mike, they're Mike all, Westmore. They're all practical. Yeah. They're all practical. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah. That's Mike Westmore's son who did all the animatronics, and Todd Masters designed and supervised them all. And Todd, you know, is well known for um, basically redesigning the Borg for First Contact. And um, yeah, got uh, an Academy Award nomination for that. Yeah, he did. He did, and and he worked for Mike all the time for Mike Westmore. Anytime Mike had a something a little too complicated for the weekly crew, he'd call Todd Masters, and and he he he'd take on the job. You know, and Todd's doing the Predator now with Shane Black, and 
he's done most of JJ's shows, and so it's an amazing, great team of Star Trek alumni coming together for this one. Um, the challenge in this one was that, you know, it's a best-selling book that has sold 15, 14 million copies worldwide. So there's a generation of kids that grew up in the 90s that love these books. And, you know, it's high adventure stuff. It's backyard adventure movie making time like, you know, like Goonies and mm-hmm. um, Gremlins and those kinds and Monster Squad, you know. And so, um, you know, it's expensive, you know, and <laughs> and. We, we made it for Universal, but it was a Universal non-theatrical. It's, it's premiering on Netflix. It's not one of the movies that Universal is putting in theaters this year um, because they have this great pipeline now for family entertainment with, with Netflix, you know. So, so you don't have a massive theatrical budget. You have a non-theatrical mm-hmm. budget, which is still great. You know, it's still we're talking about a truckload of money, you know. But when you have, you know, seven physical practical alien creatures and kids and animals and green screen and massive it's everything you're not meant to do <laughs> yeah everything you're not meant to do and, and it's 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 a big challenge the movie you know you say is aimed at family audience were you kind of like aware there was probably like a, a lack of like the joe dante sort of uh, creature films of the 80s they just didn't seem to be an equivalent they're not, yeah, they went away. That's why I made this movie. That's why I went and auctioned and optioned the rights to the book. I felt like this was a, a chance to bring back movies like the Joe Dante movies of, of the 80s. Like, you know, even the 90s, you know, he did a movie in the 90s called Small Soldiers. But unfortunately, by then it was CGI. So he didn't really have practical uh, creatures in that. On this one, we wanted, we here's what we wanted. We wanted these kids to have those aliens on set with them so they could believe in them uh, and they could connect with them and they, they could really react rather than just kind of, you know, imagine it, you know, by looking at a at a tennis ball on a C-stand in front of a green screen. Yeah. Um, but again, that's expensive because it takes time. You know, some of these actors, Dan Payne, who is really well known for just doing this kind of creature acting work. And he's actually in Star Trek Beyond, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, you know, Dan would go in at 3.30 in the morning uh, into makeup and, you know, in order to be ready, uh, camera ready by 8 a.m. in the morning. So, oh, so you never uh, wanted the kids to see him out of makeup. <laughs> yeah. No, no, they only saw him. When we were making the movie, they only saw them in makeup. After they, they first met him without their makeup, uh, the alien actors, the kids got to see them for the first time without the makeup at the rap party. <laughs> Amazing. And how did it feel to get William Shatner involved in that? Did you already know him through making of Star Trek documentaries or? Yeah, I worked, I did, we did, you know, we did the Roddenberry Vault in 2016 for the 50th yeah. anniversary. And, and Bill was a big component in that, obviously. Bill is one of the individuals that really takes viewers through the archival footage that we found and the long lost scenes by setting them up on camera and really giving you context about what things were like back then for him and for the people who made the show. So um, so I had that wonderful experience of, of spending time with him on that. And again, my hero, since I can remember, you know, uh, you know, as a fan of the original show, he is Captain Kirk. He's my hero. So to have been able to spend time with him, you just you just you find this really inspiring human being. And when this came along, I and we had this really weird uh, comedic character that is actually a, a talking intergalactic plant. My feeling was, well, you need an iconic voice, you know, for this to really work. And you need someone who's good with comedy. And I remember one afternoon I'm, I'm at CBS TV City with Bill uh, shooting the, the stuff for the Roddenberry Vault and, and his voice and the mannerisms. And 
you know, even the way he jokes with you before you, before, you know, when you're hanging out while he's getting his makeup on, you know, you're like, this is, Bill would be perfect for this. Never in a million years that I think he would say yes to it. But then I ran the idea by Judy and Garfield, Garfield Reeve Stevens, who wrote the screenplay for the movie and who've done a lot of Star Trek work and who are also friends with Bill. And they said, you know what? We were thinking the same thing since we started writing the screenplay. So the three of us got together and kind of harassed Bill Shatner until he said yes. Um, and he did. He was. He. I remember the phone call with him. I was in Vancouver uh, in pre-production meetings and I called him here in L.A., and he was like, you know, it's kind of interesting. I've never played a, a, a plant-based organism before. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he's like, I'll, send me the script. And he read the script and, and he said yes. And I'm sure that I know that Judy and Gar said some wonderful things about me and my team and, 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 and influenced that decision because um, they've known Bill longer than I have. Uh, but it was just the most surreal thing to to just have Bill Shatner voice this character, who actually happens to fly the ship. So I don't know if fans will catch this, but when you see the the ship and Phil, the plant is is piloting it. You know, we built a a chair for him that is kind of you know pretty close to Kirk's <laughs> captain chair from from the Enterprise. You know, a little bit of a an inside joke there, but. Um, so it's wild to just see a plant driving the ship voiced by Bill Shatner. And Bill Bill is such a funny guy. And Bill is really quick-witted. He's really witty and funny and fast. So those recording sessions with him, he was just coming up with a ton of great stuff that wasn't even in the script. And you hear that and you go, okay, that's in the movie now. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, so I look, I've had as a fan, because I'm not someone who went into the industry – stumbling you know i stumbled into a job in film or tv or any of that i it's you know i grew up obsessed with you know star trek and reading ray bradbury uh, short stories and his novels and watching the twilight zone and reading books by people like bruce coville who was the author of alien save my homework so uh, this was always a dream of mine to be in this industry never in a million years did i think i would you know do Star Trek stuff or meet Ray Bradbury and produce a movie with him or Bruce Colville and, you know, produce a movie based on one of his best-selling books and, and have Bill Shatner involved. Like, you don't plan for those things. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's lovely that you've met your heroes and they didn't disappoint. Not only that, they, they just exceeded all the expectations. The fact that you collaborate with them now. So that's, that's terrific. They did all of them from, again, back to Ray Bradbury, who I knew him and I was very close to him during the last couple of years of his life and a great mentor, one of the most inspiring people ever. I would, you know, he wasn't just helping us with the film. He was he was there for us and I could go to his home and sit with him and hear these amazing stories about how he the guy remembered specifically where he was at when an idea came to him 50 years ago or why he wrote a specific story or why he made a certain creative decision. And he was so generous with his time, letting me just listen to all those stories directly from him. And, and then, you know, eventually to people like Judy and Garfield, Reeve Stevens, I grew up Judy, I grew up with their books, their, their Star Trek books were, I was obsessed with those books. And then Bill Shatner, like all of them have been gracious, inspiring people. And so I don't think this happens often, but, but in <laughs> no, the case definitely. of you know, the dream, it's I all mean, been great. It does seem like that inside the Roddenberry vault project that you did, you know, from what I've seen of it, it comes across like a real labor of love. And do you feel it's like the culmination of your Star Trek work thus far? 
It is. It is. And it's great that it kind of came in at the end of that, that period of six, seven years. Um, because we, I mean, everything we learned, every challenge we had faced in the past, uh, all of that had to be applied to this one because it was a very complicated project. Here you have the long lost footage of the show, but it's in pieces. It's incomplete at times. It's, it's a fragment of it. And how do you utilize that to give a viewer a coherent experience, you know, while at the same time celebrate the show and, and, and you know, tell the hopefully something that is close to a definitive account of, of what it was like to make it. So it's a long laundry list of things you have to achieve, you know. Uh, and so I worked very closely with Mike and Denise Okuda, Ken Ross and Phil Bishop and Angelo Dante from CBS were in the trenches with us because this was not an easy project to, to orchestrate. And, and, and it had to come out for the 50th. Again, you had a limited amount of time. Uh, and, and then wanting to get Bill involved and, you know, and Nichelle and George and Walter and the writers that are still with us, like David Gerald, like Dorothy Fontana, like John D.F. Black, uh, even, even, even the casting director on the show, Joe D'Agosta, who, you know, not a lot of people have heard from him. Talk about like that scenario with Bob Salen, where he's kind of an unsung hero. I'd never seen a Star Trek documentary with Joe D'Agosta, um, uh, where he talks about how he cast these actors. This is the guy who found, you know, Kirk and Spock and, uh, and, 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 and Uhura and all these characters. And he'd never done one of these, you know? So, um, absolutely. And it, when it's so documented, like the fact that they had to recast almost the entire show, you know, that is such an integral part of what Star Trek is today, like yeah. his, his input. So uh, that's amazing. You got him there. And I think as well, you, you also, you're doing this project that these things had been released already, these original series, but like, you know, to entice buyers back, you had to produce something that was so, in excess of what they could expect from the original extra features, you know, mm -hmm. it's it, it definitely feels like people could double dip. Yeah, and it's and it's different because the way we produced Star Trek: The Roddenberry Vault, we didn't do season sets of the show again. You're buying the vault. You're buying a four-hour, you know, you know, special documentary that also happens to have on that same box set, uh, you know, the key episodes from the show, you know, but you're not really buying the episode. What you're buying is the vault, you know, the, the, I think it's like six parts. It's three parts of inside the vault. And then there's the revisiting a classic documentary that takes you back to the origins of the show. And the, um, another one on, on the look of the, the show and the VFX, everything from the cinematography of the show to the, to the miniature work and all these documentaries utilize the footage from the vault that fans had never been seen before to tell the definitive account uh, of the making of Star Trek. So so that was unique. If CBS had said, well, we're going to put out another box set of all 79 episodes, and inside that box set you'll find the vault documentaries, then that would have been a, a huge disservice to the fans because then you would have had to pay for all that stuff you already have, 79 hours of content you already have. In this case, you know, you're really buying the vault documentaries and hey, we throw in these episodes that, that are definitive, you know. Yeah, well no, definitely it's got um this side of paradise on it, hasn't it? Oh my god, yeah, and we have great stuff from this side of paradise with Leonard and Jill Ireland. Uh just never before seen moments that really humanize Spock even even more. Um and in the documentary you, you know, um 
Leonard's uh, son, Adam Nimoy, introduces a lot of those. By the way, DC Fontana, who wrote the episode, also introduces some of those clips and really talks about the genesis of that story and why it was important uh, to the evolution of that character. And Dorothy is one of the really most important individuals when it comes to develop to the development of the Vulcans, you know, in general, you know, and that character. So, yeah. well, that was uh, the yeah. that our guest picked for our original series episode. That's so, why I mentioned yeah. it. It's because David Chumble, um, our guest for that episode who came to, you know, big up the original series to us, the episode he picked for us to watch was this side of paradise, which I really loved. Uh, it's a beautiful episode, really beautiful episode. The score for that episode is great. Uh, it's an atypical episode, uh, you know, in many, in many, in many forms. And and one of the great, uh, again, even now with these deleted and extended moments, there's a great moment when, you know, she comes back um, to the ship, and there's this wonderful uh, scene between. Um, Leonard and, and Jill Ireland right there as she gets off the transporter pad that is very emotional and we have more of it in, in the vault uh, and just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Same with um, City on the Edge of Forever. There's more with Kirk and Edith Keeler together um, uh, that we put in there and just a great moments with a great a great sweet moment with Shatner and um who played Edith? Um, Jane Collins. Yeah, Collins. Yeah, just great stuff. Even alternate angles of the the bus hitting her. You know, uh, all that stuff is in there. So, and and a great story from Bill too about you know working with her on that on on those scenes. Um, I could go on and on. That I mean that thing is really loaded. Uh, another one of the most beautiful hours of television, in my opinion, Metamorphosis. Uh, Talk about a just killer, killer, emotionally engaging episode. A perfect sweeping romantic music, the cinematography, uh, the acting. That just that's one of those episodes that the more you watch it, the more you watch it, the more you become enamored of of of, um, of Star Trek. You know, uh, and and that's a, another one that has some really great um, deleted moments. The guest star for that episode. There's, there's, I mean, there's, look, there's wonderful production stories. When you, when you go through this process of making these documentaries, um, uh, you just find more and more information. You know, you, you think everything has been said about Star Trek, but really, you become surprised the more you, you uh, interview people. But um, someone who, who, you know, who was, who we really wanted to talk to for the documentary was Eleanor Donahue, who plays Nancy Hetford in that episode, and. Um, and she'd never uh, done one of these, and she, you know, she did the interview and just had wonderful stories about the making of that episode. And to me, that's one of the episodes of Star Trek that hasn't been celebrated that much. You know, it's not like City on the Edge. It's not like The Trouble with Tribbles. It's not like Mirror Mirror. You know, the episodes we keep hearing about over and over and over again, we haven't really heard that much about Metamorphosis. So it was very important to me to really dig deep into that one. Well, I was, I'm watching them episode by episode. It's when I've seen, you know, potentially like sort of maybe a third of it in the past but then uh, this is my first opportunity to watch them as it you know from beginning to end and you know I, I actually was watching them and thinking oh my god this must be a stone cold classic I'm watching now and then looking online and finding it's not particularly well thought of and I just thought that there were so many great episodes in that first season so far I mean I'm halfway through two um, that I'm just thinking like these are classic stories and I, I just Things like Who Mourns for Adonis, um, I really want to pick mm-hmm. up this, the Roddenberry set because of the there's more to, more to see on that episode as well. Like, is there a turn ending as well? Um, yep, yep, yep. And and we didn't find 
all the footage for it, but we found enough and audio elements to confirm what the original ending was. And we have Michael Forrest and Leslie Parrish in the documentary, you know, reminiscing about their experience during the making of that film and that alternate ending. So oh, I love that episode. Yeah, no, I'm definitely checking that out. Yeah, I look forward to that. I, I'm the same as Paul, gradually working my way through the original series, episode by episode, pretty much about halfway through season one. And um, it's, it's really, really impressive stuff, actually, because I, I think originally, um, when I first started going through it, in my head, I was thinking, well, this is a really episodic show. It's not kind of, you know, modern serialised TV. I can probably skip quite a few, kind of, you know, just watch the classics. But as I was going through, literally, there's... I think there's been one episode which I've, like, skipped over. Like, literally everything else has been like, no, I really want to watch this. And it's... The track record for it is really impressive. Oh, of killer. Good, no yeah, filler. Yeah, really. How many great episodes there are. Yeah, completely. I mean, I realised that I should have watched Balance of Terror, like, um, a lot earlier, um, because it's actually uh, the kind of precursor to the fan film that I was talking about that uh, one of our previous guests, Greg, directed, which I'm actually in. Um, so I should have definitely watched that before <laughs> I acted in the film. <laughs> That's another great episode, Balance of Terror. And um, again, great drama, period. That that dynamic with the Romulan captain. And I mean, just again, just great storytelling, which is which is what Stargate is. You know, it's the, the ships are cool. You know, the um, the the idea of the Federation and Starfleet and all these things are really cool. But at the end, none of it would have worked if you hadn't had great writers there like Dorothy Fontana. Like, mm. I mean, like Gene, look, Gene, Gene's idea was just amazing. I mean, and. And in that documentary of revisiting a classic, we really spent time digging into why it was so important for Gene to succeed with Star Trek because he had something to prove, you know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've watched those, you know, as you're working on those, you know, you spend hours and hours and hours, days, days, weeks and months, you know, immersed in the narrative so you can shape it and, and provide the most amount of accurate information to the viewer. But then you deliver the show or the, the, the project, you know, and then months later it comes out and you open up the package and put it in your, uh, in your Blu-ray player and watch it again. And, and it just feels very satisfying because what I've encountered, especially with The Vault, is this sense of, as I'm watching them again three months later when they came out, uh, you just feel like you're engaged and you're like, this is a really interesting story, you know. Uh, and I'm not thinking about how we did this, how we did that, how I found this person, how we got that interview. I'm just immersed in the story that, that we were able to tell. So that's why I'm really proud of that Roddenberry Vault because I think it's just a really dynamic way of exploring the intricacies of what these people accomplished from 1964, really, if you go back to the first pilot, all the way to 69 when the show ended. Well, I think it must be really nice, as you say, to that tribute to Gene's work, because I, I think something we've come across in the podcast um, from general kind of fan opinion is that Gene Roddenberry, I find, is often kind of treated 
by fans a bit how George Lucas is treated by Star Wars fans in the sense of he's the creator but sometimes um, you know it seems like fan opinion is is a bit kind of off them in terms of they prefer the ones where other people kind of took over and actually we had um, a guest on for our Next Generation episode Sean McLaughlin who kind of did quite an impassioned defence of Gene Roddenberry and saying that you know this is his vision and you know without him like you never get Star Trek you need all these things that he laid down are, are so important we covered a little bit of that in the journey to the silver screen you know with you know kind of what happened to Gene after the motion picture and kind of how he had to take a backseat role uh, starting with the motion picture and you know that's that's kind of Hollywood that's the industry things change but you wouldn't have it without Gene, just like you wouldn't have Star Wars without Crazy Uncle George, you know? <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. And uh, we could be another episode of Spotlight where we have to mention Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it always seems a- to get brought up, uh, <laughs> the other Star franchise. But, Roger, what, what's what's next, mate? I mean, it, it, do you want to continue kind of doing uh, Star Trek-based work, or have you got other things in mind? Uh uh, I'm not doing anything Star Trek based right now. I'm I'm kind of done with that. I have all these other things. I spent so many years on on those Star Trek projects, which were very important to me. So I put a lot of other projects on hold, and now now I'm really focusing on them. So Aliens comes out next Tuesday on on Netflix and home video and iTunes and every imaginable platform on the planet. Uh, we're um, we're prepping the second one now. It's four books and it's four movies. So oh, already um, green lit. Yeah, I'm working with the. I'm I'm back at Universal Monday with Judy and Garfield Reeves Stevens to get script notes on the second one. So, oh, uh, stuff is Bill back for that one as well, or? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, the character is back, so yeah, I'm sure Bill will will come come right back. I mean, we had a great time with him and a great relationship there. So, and we're coming up with even funnier stuff for him, even weirder stuff to uh, to have Bill say on the next one. Um, so that's that's in you know in, in in the early stages right now. There's also an animated show that my uh, producing partner and I are, are working on that should be announced uh, next year and should start airing in the fall of 2019. Uh, and with Judy and Gar and Tom Vitali, who was the former VP of um, Originals and Acquisitions at Sci-Fi, we're working together to bring back. Uh, Captain Power, which was a a sci-fi drama from the 80s that Joe Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5, was the showrunner on. Uh, We got the rights to the the original IP back from Landmark and Mattel, which was the company that made all the toys back then, and so they financed it. And Judy and Gar have written a great, really relevant, contemporary action-adventure show um, that that really works beautifully at reintroducing the concept and making it uh, relevant for, for this world of the potential singularity, you know? Uh, the moment where the machine will become aware and obliterate all of us. So um. it's, it's coming, uh, definitely. <laughs> but you made uh, a documentary about Captain Power in the past, didn't you? So this really is the fan dream of coming back around and actually being involved in making it. Yeah, we did. When we first acquired the, the rights to Captain Power, we, we, we had to release the original show on DVD because it hadn't been released ever. And so as part of that, I did my typical thing. I did a two-hour massive documentary with anyone and everyone who was involved and brought them all back. Uh, and that's that's out on DVD. It's still available. Um, but now what's exciting is just kind of revisiting that universe and figuring out how do we make it work for modern audiences. Um, 
Yeah. So, How far down the line is that, do you think? Is it, when do you think that's going to be coming? We're close to having a script that, that will go out with Anna Bible, because the, 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 not only did we hire Judy and Gard to write the pilot script, but we hired them to conceptualize an entire season worth of episodes with us. So we've had this creative think tank uh, with Judy and Gard, with my producing partner, Eric Carnegie, and uh, with Tom Batali, who I mentioned was the former sci-fi executive. Uh, all of us just really conceptualizing what these 10 hours of programming would be. And all that is covered in the Bible. So when we go out with it to start shopping it around to, to broadcasters soon, it'll include that whole component where we know exactly what we're going to do if we get a green light for a, a year's worth of episodes. That's why it's taken longer. Sometimes you just write the pilot, you know, and go out and try and sell it. We really want it. And we've been designing at this time. We've had Stefan Martinier, who's an amazing, talented artist who's worked on everything from the Harry Potter movies to J.J. Star Trek, visualizing everything. Todd Masters, obviously, I had to get Todd in there. What will happen is, just like with Aliens in my homework, when we get the green light to make it, it we'll have a very clear vision. So there will be no none of that development hell scenario where you spend years figuring out, okay, yeah, how do we do yeah, it? The know? dreaded studio know, you know what they want rather than what you want. You can set on the package you know, what it's looking like. The, the old Macquarie approach, you know, having the, yeah. the vision there and ready to go. Yeah, start throwing stuff on a wall and see if they like anything. That's not how we do it. You know, we very have a really clear path and, and, and a system in place. So I'm doing all that right now. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what will happen with Star Trek, but, you know, I still love Star Trek and you know, I have a great relationship with everyone at CBS and, and a lot of the people at Paramount. So um, they know how to get a hold of me. But this has been a lot of fun, guys. I mean, I, I, I think I could keep talking to you for hours. So we're all... Uh, yeah, all that's it. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, Roger. It's been, it's been really great to talk to you. Going back to what you were asking me, uh, what other things I'm working on, I just optioned the, the rights to a best-selling graphic novel to produce with Bob as a TV series. So, oh, uh, Can you tell yeah. us what it is or you're not allowed? I can't tell you what it is yet because we just literally signed the deal and now we're starting to think of who's going to write it and all that. But, you know, we'll announce something soon. And, and, and it's something that Bob brought to me. And I thought it was just magnificent and something that could work really well now as a TV, uh, as, a, as an episodic series. Uh, so, so you know, uh, we're going to work well. We're going to try and that's make amazing. a TV show. Oh, that's awesome because I know he said he had some TV series ideas on the go. And I'm a massive yep. comic book fan, Roger, myself. So that, that's why I'm interested. When well, you said this is on. really cool. It's it's an image. It's from Image Comics. Oh, really? Is, yeah. Oh, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm very cool. interested there. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, Image are like the best comics publisher working today, definitely. Well, it took. We started talking about this back in 2016 when I was working with Bob on the Wrath of Khan um, Blu-ray edition and all that. So we finally closed the deal for the rights uh, end of last year. So that's how long it's taken just to secure the rights because it's a it's a pretty cool property. But uh, now that we have those rights, we're starting to sit down with Bob and and, and figure out how do we shape this into a TV show. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely track this with interest, for sure. Yeah, 100%. That sounds really wicked. Definitely keep us updated on that one. Uh, listen, Roger, we'll let you go, mate, um, but really, really appreciate your time. It's been a great to talk to you, and we look forward to watching uh, Aliens Ate My Homework when it comes to Netflix uh, next week, you say, yeah? Yes, sir, next week. Uh, and uh, thanks again for having me. This was a lot of fun, and I'm going to reach out to Jim Conway. I think you should have him. If there's someone who could give you incredibly insightful stories about what it takes to to produce an hour of Star Trek programming. 
Jim's your guy. Oh, that'd be uh, fantastic. That'd yeah. be absolutely brilliant and much appreciated. We'll, we'll let you go because I know you've got to run for your clients. Yes, um, I do have to run. I do have to run. But I, it, it's been so much fun that, I, I like I said, I'm going to miss my meeting. But anyhow, <laughs> no but worries, do mate. stay in touch. We'll do soon. stay in touch. Oh, I'd love to come back in the future. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much. Care, guys. Good night. Thanks, Bye. 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 If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight and wish to support us, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at SpotlightPod. You can also get in touch and drop us a message directly by emailing spotlightpod at gmail.com.